Well, I want to introduce you to a really good friend of mine. Uh, this is Smokey Hurst. He's been coming to our church for a while. He's a, been a pastor for a long time. Uh, all you OSU fans here, some of you that are OSU fans, Smoke, you're going to love Smokey because he played for OU. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was really good. Uh, he was, you were really good. Yeah. He's, yeah, you were. Um, but uh, so y'all be nice to him. Anna, be nice, okay? You can't leave, okay? You got to stay. But uh, he is uh, uh, starting off our series. We've been almost, we've almost finished the book of Proverbs. Jump in with us in our reading. Welcome, Smokey. Appreciate Love you, man. Love you, brother. You're Thank blessing. you. I pray on Wednesdays for churches, for pastors, for ministries. It's kind of my uh, discipline that I have. And I've been praying for you as a church for a long time. I've been praying for Pastor Chris for a long time as well, mainly because my siblings come to this church and I know how much prayer is required to minister to them. So I've been praying for you a lot. Uh, Just to piggyback on the OU-OSU thing, my daughter She's a great combination. She's as mean and ornery as I am and as beautiful as my wife, so it's a great duo. Uh, she wanted to be ornery to me, so she kind of became an OSU fan, and I heckled her. I scorned her, everything you could think of. And she said, Daddy, you promised we could always choose as long as we hated Texas. I said, you good. You're good. Whatever you want, you're okay. Pastor Chris and I met a little bit over a month ago, and we're talking, and, and he asked if I would be willing to fill in today, and I was so grateful and such an honor to be with you. Um, but he, he gave this passage in the wisdom literature of Proverbs chapter 22. We'll find our way there in a minute. And I've just been thinking and praying and seeking God. What is it that is so remarkably different in the Proverbs than our current culture? What is so unique about what we see in Scripture as opposed to what is pervasive in every aspect of our life that we face on a daily basis. And it really came down to, as I was just reading and reading some history and studying through things, it's kind of that, that American dream mentality, that American dream that has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. People want to leave where they've been, their current countries, and they want to flee to the United States. I took my oldest son when he was 11 with me to Liberia, Africa, and we're there. I remember being there, and there's a bunch of little kids and all these other people. They're begging for him to bring them back to the United States, and he's oblivious. He has no clue really what's going on, and they said, do you think your mom will love us? He's like, yeah, she's awesome. She'll love anybody, and so I said, dude, we don't, we can't feed all of them, and so just that mentality, that this thought process that it's just better or it's unique when we go back over to America. That American dream has been used forever, but it was really coined and codified in 1931 by the writer and historian James Truslow Adams in his best-selling book, Epic America. Let me quote from 1931. He describes that American dream, the dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and full and fuller for everybody with opportunity for each according to ability and achievement, he explains. It's not a dream of motor cars and high wages, merely, but a dream of social order in which each man and woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of circumstances, birth, or position. In a society based on these principles... An individual can live life to its fullest as they define it. I don't want you to get me wrong. I love, love living in America. 
I've been to a, a number of countries around the world, and I know that I love living in America. I know the blessings and the freedoms that we have for, because of countless thousands who have laid down their lives. So I love the idea and I love the blessings of living in America. But this American dream has been used as a tool as actually the same mentality that Satan had when he fell from, haven, when he fell from heaven. That mentality that I'm independent. I can live life independent of God, his creation, and his order, and I'm pretty good in and of myself. And so this mentality, this American dream mentality, as he lays it out in 1931, is really pervasive in all of creation today. It's really anti-God. It's anti-being dependent upon the creator for everything that we have. Today we live in the logical conclusion of Mr. Adam's statement. It was that last line that I read. It said, in a society based on these principles, the American dream principles, an individual can live life to its fullest as they define it. And that's not life. I'm not the author and perfecter of the faith, so I don't get to define life. But today we have this statement we've all said at some point in time, maybe not all, but most, there's no more common sense. Well, common sense is based on common morality. When there's an objective morality that kind of governs what we're going about and what we're doing, then there's a common sense of how to approach life through that objective morality. So as when morality becomes subjective and I become the author of its definition, it's a moving target and nobody can have commonality anymore. So common sense is gone and it's never to come back because everyone has their own definition. He said what we already read, but a dream of social order in which each man and woman shall be able to attain to the fullest statue. The word social has taken on a whole new meaning with the word social media. This life that it's all about me, myself, and I, and me making the most about me in every situation. And narcissism has, rosen, has risen so quickly in our society because it's all about me. And all of us are very different. We're all unique and we all see things differently. And so there's no objective standard. It's all subjective based on my definition. And this American dream has warped us in our thinking because we think we can do it in our own strength. Today in our text in Proverbs, the author, the writer is Solomon. Solomon is by far the wealthiest, wisest human that's walked this planet. And in Solomon's wisdom and in his wealth, he's the one that's writing to us about how we are to be surrendered to Christ. Now think about his wealth. Today, the richest person on the planet, it gives or takes on who loses money and gains money every other week. But right now, it hovers around that $200 billion mark, pocket change for most of us, I know. But it's hovering in that $200 billion. Solomon's wealth, all added up, wasn't in the billions, but in the 4.5 trillion range. We're talking 23 times the wealth of the richest people on the planet today. And in this, he is the one that is writing to us, telling us and describing a life worth living is in dependency upon our Creator. It's in trusting, following, and submitting our life to something that's far greater than any wealth could ever purchase on planet earth. Today, we read in chapter 22, 1 through 6, and it's a call, maybe better a charge, a challenge from Solomon to us of the life in which we are to live. Would you stand as we honor the Word of God and read the first six verses in Proverbs chapter 22? 
It says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent see dangers and hides himself from it. But the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from him. Train up a child in the way they should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Have a seat. Let me just jump into the main idea of chapter 22. The entire chapter. More or less all the Proverbs. Actually, it's, it's kind of the theme of the entire Scripture. It is dependency. It is to be truly dependent on the one who gives life. It is to truly surrender all aspects of life over to God, the Creator, and everything. But the word dependency in our culture today has more of a negative connotation than a positive one. It kind of comes from that American dream mentality. We're going to be independent of England and everything else in society. That I'm my own person, my own man. I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. I get to be the definer of all aspects of life. And we all know it's not there. I'm so honored and and so grateful for Pastor Chris and Pastor Chad and others that have been encouraging and challenging you to be in the Word, to be reading through the Bible as a church together. There's nothing greater for your walk than to spend time communing yourself with the creator of the universe. But as you've been reading the Bible this year, I pray that you have started to notice something. Your name's not in it. There's a lot of things that are left out of the Bible. Number one is my opinion has been left out of the Bible over and over and over again. And your name has not been in it. So meaning the Bible is not about you. Oh, it's most definitely for you, but it's not about you. It's about the name that is above every other name. It's about the Redeemer, the Savior, the bread of life. It's about the Lord, the Creator, the Son of God, the only begotten Son, the beloved Son, the Holy One of Israel, the wonderful Counselor. It is about the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's about the Bridegroom, the Head of the Church. It's about the Emmanuel, the Almighty God, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, the Word, the Rock, the Savior, the True Vine, the Lion of Judah, the Son of Man, Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The Bible is about Jesus. All of life is about Jesus. And he's the one we're to be dependent upon. The Bible is alive and active. It brings life to us when we surrender our hearts to it. It brings life to all areas of our life when we walk in dependency. We're not, as Pastor Chris and I were talking about, one of the greatest blessings that you could potentially have if you're able to is go on one of these trips to Israel. The last trip that I took, we were in Israel as COVID is unleashed on the world. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, not too bad of a place to be stuck. But I do like my family. I want to get back to them someday. But when you go and you put boots on the ground, you start to realize this isn't a galaxy far, far away in make-believe land. This is real. Your faith is is enriched because of the, the understanding that Jesus is real. His word is alive, and this is what we're to be dependent upon. It's not some figment of our imagination, but it's real. So dependency is our key. Point number one, found in verse one. What is a name? A good name is so much more than just a good reputation. A reputation is really what is said about someone and rarely true. 
our reputation today is really kind of our, our PR department put on steroids for the, for the social media to see everything that's going on. We take all the world and we, we try to make it as clean as we can and we still Photoshop it and we put that out for the world to see. No one says, hey, look, my kid failed every one of their classes. They got to repeat the last grade. Come celebrate with us at two o'clock on Saturday. Like that's not what get, gets posted on life. We don't share that with the real world. And so we try to put our reputation. I remember a few years back, I'm the one screaming at my family, my children, get your rear end over here and give your mother a good photo for this video. All the other ones are deleted. This photo is the one that was used, and we posted that. It's this PR department trying to puff up ourselves for our, our reputation so that, that we would have a good name, that we would pursue this thought process. We want this reputation for what? Wealth, we want it for honor, we want it for privilege, we want it for prestige, for what? The American dream. We're, we're trying to go after the things that are of this world, and again, not for me. Wealth can buy a lot of fun things. You can enjoy a lot of great things on this planet with a lot of wealth. I, don't get me wrong, if, if someone gave you a paid vacation to the beach, most people would love that. Feet in the sand, listening to the waves, seafood at the raise of the hand, anytime you wanted it. That would be a great vacation. It would drive me nuts in 30 minutes or less. I'd be bored out of my mind. My dream vacation is two weeks in Alaska hunting a grizzly bear with a bow and arrow and just my backpack and goods. Drop me off on a plane. Parachute would make it cooler. And you're thinking, you are nuts and that would be torture. See, wealth is all individualistic. It's all based on me. It's all about what I want. And yet we're, we miss out, and we don't even know what we can use it for. Your reputation, your wealth, your riches, your name is only good here on earth. has no currency in heaven. So why do, we, why do we spend our life pursuing it? James chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Do you not know that you're, you do not know what tomorrow will bring? So what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes gone. Why would I pursue the rest of my life after an American dream that I can't even take with me? I have, has no benefit whatsoever. So you can't purchase a good name. You can't work hard for a good name. You can't live the American dream well enough for a really good name. In the New Testament, Jesus is, is teaching, he's leading people, and a man that we call the rich young ruler runs up to him and says, Jesus, Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus' response to him is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Jesus is trying to point out the, the, the thought that Paul later writes crystal clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I may have misspoke earlier when I said my name, your name wasn't in the Bible because I just found mine. Because that's me. I know I'm not good. I know this is speaking directly to my heart. I can do a lot of good things. People in my life and people that I surround myself with, they'll say, oh, you're so good, you're talented, you can do this, you can do this. But I know, I know the evil that resides inside of me and I know I'm not good. 
and I know that I have to be dependent on Christ. And so this good name that he tells us in Proverbs chapter 22 is not a name that you can earn. It's actually a new name that is given to those who give their life to Christ. That surrender, that are saved. That means you confess your sins, you repent of your sins, you surrender your life to the Lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ. It's not getting my ticket punched that I can just go to heaven. It's a complete transformation of my identity. My identity, my reputation, my wealth, or their lack of my failures in my past, my successes in my future, none of them get to define me. My Savior gets to define me. And he is good. He is the good name that I long for. Pastor uses the uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 a lot. I've noticed that over the last few months attending church with you. And I have used it in my whole entire ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he talks about being a new creation. But in verse 21, he says this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That we'd have a new name transformed by the gospel. And that when God looks down upon Smokey, he doesn't see Smokey's sin, his failures, or he doesn't look down and say, ah, oh, poor him, he's just not good enough. He sees Jesus' righteousness on me. I mean, my faith is weak on a daily basis. I struggle with doubt and fear. I don't know about you, but those are real real emotions and thoughts on a daily basis. I struggle with, am I good enough? Am I going to be liked enough? How am I going to take care of my family? How am, I going to, how am I going to do anything for tomorrow? And Satan attacks my faith all the time because my faith is weak. But you know what? My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in Jesus. And Jesus isn't weak. Jesus isn't intimidated. He isn't threatened by Satan. My faith is in Jesus, and he's the righteousness. He's the new name that transforms everything. And that new name that we see in Proverbs 2, or chapter 22, is to be chosen above great riches. The world's greatest riches do not compare to the salvation of a new name we have in Christ. Jesus says it really well in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven the gospel, the new name, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, he covers up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. God's blessed me with some really neat things in life. I have some neat trinkets and, and gifts and things that I've acquired in my lifetime. And one of those is the fact that as coach, or coach, do not tell Chris I called him coach. As pastor, Chris said, had the opportunity to play college football. Played for a team that won a couple of Big 12 championships, a national championship, and a Rose Bowl. And we ran out of time before we won another national championship my senior year. At OU, we don't lose. We ran out of time. Just didn't get there. So I have this nice box that my father had made me. And it has my rings in there. He just made it too big, so we're supposed to win another Big 12 and a national championship. So I spread them out for, you know, cosmetic appearances. I have nine different watches from all the bowl games, Big 12 games, lettering my third year, and all the different things that go into it. I have all of those things, and I would gladly go and sell them off to buy a field with billions and billions of dollars of worth on it. Just so I could have that gift. And the 
Salvation we have is far more valuable than all the riches in the world. And this is where we come from. To have that new name, to be transformed by the gospel, what does that look like? Well, if you have extreme wealth, no one has to doubt. No one's questioning if you're extremely wealthy. We'll know by the things that you wear, the things that you eat and the don't eat, the things that you drive. You'll drive some really neat things. They'll be shiny and fast, I promise you, if you have a lot of wealth. If you'll have houses, you'll have toys, you will, everyone will see the fruits of your wealth. To live under the new name of Christ, the one that has all sorts of wealth, there'll be fruits of the Spirit that'll be evident. No one will have to doubt and question whether you have this new name or transformed by the gospel. Here's the key to all of chapter 22 is dependency on Christ. Listen, chapter 20, <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, that good name is what the rest of the whole chapter hinges on. And this is what I see so often in people's life. They never truly surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They never truly are transformed by the gospel. Then they try to do all the religious Christian things, and they go, it didn't work. I guess it's not real. But you can't do chapter 22, verses 2 and following if there's not a transformation of a new name that takes place first. It's the new name that brings the rest. So now we go to number two. Point number two is what is wealth? We see this in, in two through five. It is in this idea that we understand these four verses better together. Our basic level of poetry, and that's all I have. I mean, I have rock bottom basic level of understanding of poetry. This is as good as a romantic letter my wife gets from me. Roses are red, violets are blue, honey is sweet, and so are you. That's as good as it gets. But even in that poem, you know the whole poem isn't about roses. It's not about violets. But you got to understand what a rose is. you got to understand what a violet is. And you probably ought to taste some honey before you go on telling somebody else they're sweet like that. So there's some concepts of poetry. you got to understand the point. But it's the, the poem that drives the point home, the whole of it. And so here in this whole, we talk about these verses can only be applied to that those who have a Good name, rather, have been given a new name. Now look at verse 2. This is Solomon, the richest person that's ever lived, has $4.5 trillion of wealth writing this verse to us. Now listen, $4.5 trillion to the poorest human on the planet is quantifiable. We have calculators that can figure that math out. We understand it's a big gap, but it's quantifiable. Solomon's $4.5 trillion to the wealth of the Lord of creation is unqualified, unqualifiable. You can't map it out. There's not a software big enough to do that math. So when he says all rich and poor are alike, I get it. We all stand before God. Think about the beggar on the street corner, holding up a sign, praying for someone, hoping and wishing for someone that has the gift of compassion and mercy to drive by and put out some dollars. They're waiting and dependent on somebody else to give them money. Let's pick on Elon Musk. He's the only rich guy that I can remember his name. He didn't create himself. He didn't speak over $200 billion into his bank account, did he? No, he was created by God, given a mind, and then 
Elon created some things that were pretty spectacular and people bought them. If he would have created cruddy products, he wouldn't be a billionaire, would he? He had to be dependent on others' money to buy the things that he had created. So the poorest and the richest are still dependent on others. Not so with God. Think about our U.S. currency. Our U.S. currency is backed by a rock that God spoke into existence. God's wealth far surpasses everything else, and we are to surrender to him. Listen, at one point in time in history, every knee will be dependent on him. Every tongue will confess he is Lord and Savior. The question is, will you do that freely today? Will you freely choose to surrender to him today? Verse 3. The prudent see danger, and they hide themselves from it. But the simple go on, and they suffer for it. I enjoy riding a motorcycle. And when you're, when you're on a motorcycle, my wife is here, so I have to be careful. But driving just a smidge faster than you're supposed to, not so much anybody else would notice, it's pure joy. But there's also a lot of dangers down that road. And if you're not being observant for the hazards and dangers on the road, you're the fool. Only a fool would be blindfolded riding a motorcycle. I looked up the top 10 reasons for motorcycle wrecks. And I Googled and I looked and I looked. And you have to get to number seven or eight before it involves another vehicle. The vast majority of motorcycle wrecks are the foolish driver behind the bike. And that's the same thing in life that he's saying here in this verse. Is, is like, if you're being wise, you're looking down and say, okay, there's real dangers. Church family, there's, there's real dangers in this world that want to destroy you. There's not just neutral ground in which you just can kind of mutter through life and it's not a big deal. There's real danger. And he's saying, if you want to be wise, you look for them. Because the road is hazardous. And the suffering isn't just for today, but it's for eternity. Verse 4, the reward for humility in the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. This turns us back to what is true wealth. I've met some very extremely wealthy people who are bitter because all they face is pain and brokenness in relationships. What is wealth? What's the point of it? Let me give you a quick life hack. The quickest way to ruin anything is make it all about you. The quickest way to go, to go to any event, go to somebody's birthday party, go to a wedding, go somewhere and make everything about you and you'll ruin it quickly. You've heard this, I've heard this my whole life. At restaurants, one of the worst crowds they do not enjoy as waiters and waitresses is the Sunday afternoon crowd. Those that leave church and you go to restaurants and we go expecting them to serve us and to give to us. Nowhere in scripture does it say I'm supposed to be served. It says I am to go and serve. So when I go to a restaurant, it's my job to serve. It's my job to minister. It's my job to care for others. I don't get to say, not it today. The quickest way to ruin something is make it all about you. But the quickest way to enjoy something that's painful, that's difficult, is to be humble and do your very best to make everybody else's life as good and great as possible, and you'll enjoy it 10 times more than they will. Show up to a party. Show up to a birthday. Show up to a wedding. Show up to a restaurant. 
and you just serve, genuinely care for people, minister to people, love on them, and what you'll see is this verse comes out in all of life. The greatest blessing you can is under a new name, love and serve those around you. Verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, and whoever guards his soul will keep it from them. Thorns and snares are real. I mean, these, if you ever go hunting or you ever go hiking through the woods, especially in Oklahoma, they're everywhere. Thorns want to grab a hold of you. I, I always want to know, did thorns exist before the fall of mankind? Or is that part of the curse of sin? I think it is. Ticks and mosquitoes are part. And so we see this thorns and snares, and, and they, they're grabbing a hold. And one of the greatest thorns and snares in all of history has been the word entertainment. We kind of put entertainment on this platform over here as neutral. And we just thought, well, that's just entertainment. It's really not that big. It's just entertainment. It really doesn't have an agenda. It's just entertainment. And entertainment is some of the deepest, darkest thorns and snares that we face on a regular basis. Meaning you can't, as parents, you can't just watch all the thorns and all the snares and be surprised when your children are addicted to one that rhymes with thorn. I mean, you can't watch levels of filth, outright or suggestive, that the word of God is crystal clear in condemning behaviors on entertainment and then be shocked that your children grow up and just reject everything about God because that is what you have trained them for. You have prepared them for that. As a parent, I can't live the comfortable American dream not really committed to Christ and his bride, the church that he died for, and then be shocked when my children reject him altogether because I trained them for that. As opposed to Psalm 1, blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. I can't meditate on the Word of God, the wisdom of Scripture. I can't focus on the Word of God and consume 40 hours of entertainment throughout the week. I can't do it consuming, consuming very much entertainment. And so this whole idea that we think it's just a neutral ground is a lie from Satan. What you do matters. How you live matters. What you consume matters. And there's nobody better than sniffing out the hypocrisy of your life than your own family. They know who the real you is. Sometimes we don't even know it. That's why my wife is my helpmate, because I have blind spots, and I need someone that can kick me in the teeth and say, hey, you're not all that you think you are. We have to have that in our life. That's the accountability of the body of Christ. And it says to be consumed with the Word of God. Point number three, found in verse six, what is it to train? The idea of train is, is really that idea of to dedicate unto the Lord. King Solomon, when he had dedicated the temple that was holy, he set it apart as holy. And there's so many aspects of it being holy and upright. So in training, we have to set apart with great intentionality. I remember when our oldest son was born and we left the hospital and we were meeting with the pedi pediatric doctor and, and they're telling us, she's telling us, listen, if you can set your child up for success in his diet, 
for the first year of life. Do not allow any processed sugar to enter his system. You will set the trajectory of his diet on a healthy pattern for the rest of his life. You need to train his palate for what is good and provides real nutrients in his life. Training him. Dedicating him. It was intentional. I had to focus on that and, and pour into that. We are training his palate for what was good. But it also has to be trained at a level that they're ready for it. I love a really good steak. So I can't, I didn't bring my newborn home and say, all right, son, time to man up. Let's have a T-bone together. I had to put the nutrition at a value and at a level where he could understand it. Meaning you can't sit down and have a hermeneutical discussion of soteriology with your son when they're toddlers, when they're infants. With small children in the home, you can't sit down and have a theological conversation of the substitutional atonement of Christ. But what if the substitutional atonement of Christ, meaning the work of Jesus on the cross, taking your sin, substituting the pain and the wrath that God poured out on him for your place, if that is real in your life and lived out in front of your children, you set the table for that day when you can have that conversation with him. You have let it lived out. Your family ought to get the best part of Jesus in you when you come home, not the devil. They ought to get the overwhelming goodness of God being poured out in them because nobody is better sniffing out a hypocrisy than your own children. I think they're part bloodhound when it comes to it. They know it. They know when it's real. They know when it's fake. And this is what happens. They will hear your actions more than your words. I can't tell my children, listen, guys, I want you to be healthy. I want us as a family to be healthy. So we're not going to eat all this processed sugar. We're not going to have all this junk food in our house. You can't have any of that. We're not going to have any of that. And then I go over here and do nothing but eat Oreos and donuts, drinking it down with a pop. My actions are screaming louder than my words will ever speak to them. Just as when bringing our children to church is not the whole idea of training them. I can't bring my kids to church and hear Pastor Chad and Pastor Chris pouring their heart and soul out and screaming and saying, God loves you. He has the greatest gifts for you. Surrender all of your life to Christ. And then as parents, you go home and just live the comfortable American dream, halfway committed to anything in Christ. Your actions scream louder than any pastor will ever be able to portray on a stage what they see on a regular basis. How we live matters. We have to pour our heart into them. And we have to surrender to them in everything. Satan has made us lie, has believed in lies that everything is neutral. We think children are born neutral. They're born good. The scripture tells us they're born evil. We're all born with sin in our heart. If you don't believe a child is born evil, put two toddlers in a pen with one toy and you'll see some evil behaviors. You'll see sin outright in front of you. They didn't have to be trained for that. No one had to teach them that. It's obvious. But we think everything's neutral. Well, entertainment's neutral. Children are neutral. Sports are neutral. This is neutral. Music is neutral. Food is neutral. But it doesn't work that way. God says you'll love him and hate Satan or hate Satan and love God. Or, James says it this way, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no neutral ground. Parenting is great intentionality. It's not hard, it's just being intentional. Hard makes it sound like there's a day I can turn the off switch off. It's just being intentional into them. 
I was with my children at their track meet a few weeks ago, a month ago, give or take by now, and I was on a long run before the track meet started, and I was listening to a book, and the author said this, and I've been thinking about this over and over for the last month. Nothing, nothing in Christianity is addictive. Nothing about Christ, of Christ, for Christ is addictive. I came to the church early this morning, and I didn't see anybody camped out waiting to get in. I didn't see anybody banging on the doors. I'm pretty confident no one woke up this morning scratching and itching their body because they had to read their Bible or they're going to blow up. And I'm pretty sure we don't drive down the road and all of a sudden we got hit with this, this innate addictive behavior that we just got to turn on praise and worship and pray, God, pray to God in that moment. And the author said this, the reason is Christ wants us to freely choose his goodness every day. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't force himself on anybody. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good, meaning all addictions are from Satan and not from God. This is why I want to practice the discipline of fasting as a regular practice in my life. I fast from food. I fast from a lot of really good gifts from God. I fast from entertainment. I fast from music. My favorite fast is from all noise in my vehicle for months. No radio, no news, nothing but time in solitude and praying with God. I fast from sugar. I fast from a lot of things because I want nothing in this world to have control over my heart besides Christ. So addictive behaviors to be broken are spiritual battles. Addictive behaviors stopped in your life, in your children's lives, are spiritual battles. Our youngest son, when he was three years old, the thorns and the snares were thick in his life. They were thick and sharp. My wife and I could sense that Satan's might was to grab a hold of our child. Our whole, my, my children felt it. Everyone could just sense this. And I remember night after night, my wife and I just on our knees and just praying, God, deliver him from this. Protect him from him. Protect him from all of this. That we as mom and dad, our lives would showcase the goodness of God over addictive behavior. We've got to show it to him. That God is good and all surpassing. <clears throat> Are you training your children, better, better yet, are you battling for them? I promise you, Satan is. Satan longs to have them. And the greatest legacy we could ever live before our children is to give them an example of what it is to trust and to be dependent on God when everything is on the line. When you have no hope, no financial security, no other option except to believe in the goodness of God. The world tells us when we suffer and go through hardship, God has rejected us, but that's not true. Romans chapter 5 says this way, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Training a child is not by accident. Seeking the Lord is not by accident. Both Old and New Testament tell us if we seek with our whole heart, we will find him. The real you comes out. The real you and how you believe in God comes out. Not your Sunday school answers, but the real ones come out and onto your family. And so if I have a lack of passion for Christ, I have a lack of concern and excitement about his bride, the church, 
The problem is me. It's not, it's not out here because God is awesome. He's overwhelming. You don't understand the power he has. You don't understand the salvation he has for you. You don't understand the glorious future that is in store for you because we're consistently, constantly seeking out an American dream that has no hope. The hope is in Christ. And we will miss it. Your children will miss it. Living an American dream in some kind of perceived independency. The only hope we have is dependency upon Christ. And it will be hard. And we will have to suffer. But to train a child in the way they should go, first and foremost, you as parents have to have a new name. One given to you from God that is good. You have to walk as wise in his wealth and set an example of what it is to be dependent on him in everything. And it will work. It will be hard. I believe Eve, in the fall of man, had this curse that in childbearing it would be great pain. And I believe that has everything to do with the pain of raising a child, not giving birth to one, because I do not believe an epidural outsmarted God. And I believe everything in me that Eve would have taken the pain of childbirth 10 million times over the pain of her son murdering her son. Training a child is great intentionality. Paul words it like this very well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and I want you to listen with great intent to these words of Paul. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things not seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father in heaven, I pray as we come today and we're here in this heart of worship, in this posture of prayer, that God, we would surrender everything over to you. One of the greatest blessings you give us as man and woman, as husband and wife, is children. And Father, I pray we would take that as one of the highest honors in our life to train them well. But Father, I know in this room, there are still those that have never, ever been given a new name because they've never truly submitted to your Lordship. And so today we're asking, I'm praying, God, would you please draw them to your heart? Draw them to your love. Let them understand that you're not mad at them. For the full wrath of God was already poured out on Jesus, so there's none left. That you love them. You love their children. You love their children's children. And you want to see generational change in their family. So, Father, draw them to you. I pray that you'd be glorified in all that we do and say. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.